<laughs> so he can't come today. So we talked about that. Okay, so what'd you guys think of America in the Book of Yerzin? Opaque, Fun. impossible, easy. Fun to tell summaries of this. Someone's like, what are you reading? What's the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, it was really hard to answer that question. <laughs> Wait, it was really hard answering that question? The question, what are you reading? I yeah. started reading out loud whatever part I was in, and they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what? <laughs> so, did you find it totally baffling? Any part that was less baffling than any other part? The first time through America, it was a little bit harder than the first time through years, and I thought Okay, did you read them twice? I read America twice. Wow. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's part. This is what we we're talking about on Monday. That part of the um, point is to sink or swim, but you won't sink. You may not quite know what's going on, and you might have you might flounder, but you won't sink. So, and part of it is that that Blake is inventing and putting together these various mythological beings out of different traditions. The reason he's doing that is, well, what do you think the reason he's doing that is? Maybe because all religions are the same. Uh, or all religions are, are one. Are one. Right. Nice. That all religions are one. That the different traditions that he is drawing from, and he is, he's drawing from biblical, he's drawing from ancient Greek, he's drawing from Norse, which is an important thing to be aware of, that Los with his hammer is um, to some extent like Thor, and Earthona, Los's father, is also to some extent like Thor. Um, there's Odin, there are various beings that are coming out of all sorts of traditions. So, so putting them together in a way is making it clear that all religions are one. What were you going to say, Ryan? Well, and he's also, I think, drawing from Ossian, right? Yeah. Person, which is interesting, so he's borrowing a made-up mythology. Right, so tell people what Ossian is. Well, it's, it's just a made-up mythology as supposedly... What supposedly a translation. Yeah, supposedly a translation. Yeah. Is this what you used to refer to last semester, what you call the Book of Ocean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ocean. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's the, there was an 18th, whom Samuel Johnson uh, um, debunked, 18th century writer named McPherson who basically claimed to have found an ancient Celtic text, which was as good as Homer or anything, Norse or anything Greek. And what he actually did was he wrote what he called was a translation, but he just wrote it up and it's a, a tissue of, of ideas that he swiped from all sorts of different traditions and turned into his own story. So is he the Percy Jackson of the 18th century? No. But the but it's exciting and it's like all, only the best parts. That's part of the, part of what McPherson was doing. So a lot of people thought that he found this great, amazing foundational text, but he hadn't. He just made it up. So 
and there are other writers at the time who are making stuff up, most famously Chatterton, Thomas Chatterton, who claimed to have found a whole lot of Chaucer and a lot of medieval poetry that he in fact wrote at the age of 17, and that was so good that people thought it was real. And then he actually committed suicide at the age of 17. Who? Chatterton, Thomas uh. Chatterton. So there, and he, he was just an amazingly gifted poet, an amazingly gifted person, but in a lot of trouble, and um, he got out of trouble in the worst possible way. So there is this background of reimagining myth, you could say, or, or appropriating myth. And so that's what Blake is doing, maybe more than anyone else. But there are other people doing it. I mean, if you think of Christopher Smart, those of you who are in the 18th century poetry class, there's a way that that's what Smart is doing. In there's a way that what's what Smart is doing? Reappropriating myth. Just oh. taking all these moments out of the Bible and out of the Christian tradition and turning it into this vast um, celebration this vast rejoicement that is occurring all over. There's like a let blah be, like yes. rejoice with blah. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Um, while he considers his cat Jeffrey. Yeah. So, all those, so that's in the air, that possibility. And translation of, or let's say novelty in myths is in the air also. There's, a trend, there's the, translations of Norse mythology. We talked a little bit about the coming of ballads, that is that what happens at the end of the 18th century is that collections of ballads are being made, and in particular there was a man, a, a prelate named Bishop Percy, who published three volumes of what he called relics of old English poetry. I think that's what, what it's called. Maybe it's just relics of English verse. Anyhow, it's always called Percy's Relics, spelt with a Q, R-E-L-I-Q-U-E-S. And he, was, he published a whole lot of ballads that people then got to read and became aware of. So one of the first things we talked about this semester were the ballads that, that appear this way and that influence how people think about what poetry is or could be or what one's relation to poetry is. Percy was also translating North myths, Norse myths. So these were the first times that these myths became familiar to English-speaking people. And so they were new and thrilling. It was like, wow, there's all this amazing stuff that we didn't really know about and only heard about, if at all, second or third hand. So why not write your own if you can't find the perfect one? And so that's what Blake did. And what he does, if you imagine reading a translation of a Norse myth, right now they get introduced. That is, if you get the Dolaire's book of Norse myths or Neil Gaiman's retelling of Norse myths or whatever, they'll tell you who is who. But myths don't do that. Myths assume you know who is who. They assume that you know who Zeus is. So if Zeus and Hera are looking down on Earth at what Prometheus is up to, you don't get an introduction as to who Zeus and Hera are. The assumption is that you know who they are. So if you read Norse myths in translation, the assumption is you know who Thor and Odin and Loki are. And we kind of do now. 
because, because for the last 200 years they've been part of English language culture. But a myth plunges you right into the middle of things. So Blake writing his own myth is perfectly happy to do that and to be describing characters not in a novelistic sense where you have to learn who they are before you see what they do, but describing them as though you already know who they are. And one reason he's doing that is because the implication is you do already know who they are. And you know who they are because you're a human being and you're living a human life. And it's more a question of figuring out who among these mythological beings is the particular being who is recognizable as the being who, who created our fallen world or who caused us to fall or who gave us sexual energy or who gave us revolutionary energy. But you can pick that up pretty quickly from context. That is Blake's bet. Now obviously it takes a whole lot because Blake is the only myth maker with these mythological characters in his work. It takes a whole lot to orient yourself. But the idea would be that that orientation is something you can do because you're a human being. And that the world you're orienting yourself in is a world that Blake is describing and that you live in. So it can be hard for that reason to orient yourself, but maybe not impossible. What did you think, Max, in your second reading of America? Well, so I read it first and I was like, well, what was the action? Yeah, so Orc is really a representation, you could say, of revolutionary energy. Yeah. yeah. And so America, a Prophecy, is published in 1793, just at the same time, just before the, the um, Songs of Experience. So it's not like he was writing these, you know, easy and deep and beautiful poems, and then he went hog wild. It's he's doing them at the same time. So the thought in America and the thought in the Songs of Experience, that's, these are two versions of what Blake is thinking and imagining at the time. And so if you put them together, the Songs of Experience are about the way people are oppressed in England, right? They're, the, they're how the chimney sweepers and the um, little children and the little girl lost and the various other beings, um, including the soldiers and the harlots and the marriage hearse in London, are oppressed by the system. And then you have, at the same time he's writing America, which is about a revolution, against Albion, or against the king of Albion. Albion, everyone knows, means... Great Britain. Great Britain. Do you know why? Because it's like the White Cliffs, right. and Albion is like Albino or Albus. So yeah, like Alba in, in Latin. Yeah. So Albion is, the, is essentially the chalk kingdom, 
the, the kingdom whose boundary is made of the white chalk of the White Cliffs of Dover. So there is therefore the revolt against the guardian prince of Albion, and probably you weren't expecting to see names like Washington and Hancock and Ben Franklin. Perfect President's Day poem. Every President's Day, read America. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like the Mount Rushmore of Blake's poems. It is. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's really surprising, to just when you start reading it, and there they are, and they are representing this this battle against the, the American Revolution. Now, the American Revolution was actually done by 1783, so this is ten years later that Blake is going back to talk about the American Revolution. But the American Revolution was followed six years later by what? The French Revolution. So what, so what happens in America now becomes, spreads to Europe. And that's part of the point. And that this spreading of the American Revolution to a revolutionary fervor in general is something that's occurring as Blake writes this. And Blake wrote a poem called The French Revolution which the, he, he begins by saying, from the windows of my room, I can see the mountains of old France. And he's thinking of the American Revolution as, as just catching fire and, and um, causing revolution all over Europe against the oppression of kingship. And the French Revolution didn't work out like the American Revolution. It's something we'll see in Wordsworth. Wordsworth was actually in France during the French Revolution and talks about it. And what happened in the French Revolution is a kind of disastrous outcome, comparatively speaking, compared to the American Revolution, followed by the coming of an emperor, Napoleon, who was originally a part of the revolutionary energy that is spreading from America to Europe, but then he becomes this isn't what Blake is talking about in the Book of Urizen or America, but it is something Blake will think about later. Napoleon becomes like the tyranny that he has overthrown. So he's a revolutionary figure who then becomes a tyrant. And, and Napoleon is, and, and Blake is aware of that? No, well, not in 1793, because Napoleon didn't take power until the beginning of the 19th century, oh. depending on what you mean by taking power. But he, was, he crowned himself emperor in 1804. And Blake was alive for that, but yeah, Blake lived to eighteen twenty-seven. Okay. So this is there are Blake's later work. There the, is is in the context of what happened to the French Revolution, but what Blake is already predicting in America is that, and certainly predicting in the Book of Urizen, which comes right after the Marriage of Heaven and Hell, is the strangeness and the unfortunateness of what tends to happen to revolutions, which is that when power is, is overthrown, the leaders of, the, of those who overthrow it can't help trying to take power themselves. And it's part of the general political story that Blake is telling in his poetry 
that revolutionary energy turn that revolution turns into reaction, that revolutionary energy turns into tyranny, and the that's what we see as well in the book of Urizen, that Urizen himself starts out as a misguided revolutionary, but as a revolution as a revolutionary, he's someone who wants to has an idea for how to make the universe better. And his idea for how to make the universe better is to repress things that he thinks are not, are making life harder than it should be, or make, making being harder than it should be. Making, he, he seeks, as he puts it, for a joy without pain. And a joy without pain, yeah, that sounds good. But it turns out that you only get, that a joy without pain requires the repression of the totality, let's say, of, of the world. And so he therefore becomes a figure of suppression. I don't want to say repression because that sounds Freudian. And it might not be wrong to sound Freudian, but first off, a figure of suppression, of preventing things that don't harmonize with a vision of the universe as just purely happy. But the universe is not happy. And so the denial of unhappiness, let's say, this is, this is more, these, this wouldn't quite be Blake's vocabulary, but it's what's going on. The denial of the unhappiness leads to suppression and leads to to inflexibility leads to as Urizen himself will say he wants a solid without fluctuation he looks for joy without pain a solid without fluctuation but fluctuation is what life is and so a solid without fluctuation is something inert and eventually it becomes the stone that Urizen establishes, and that stone is also the stone of the Ten Commandments. So part of the idea here is that Blake is, is drawing together all sorts of imagery that, like all poetic imagery, our response to it has to be something like getting it. There's no rule for understanding a metaphor, let's say. It, it's the very nature of a metaphor that there's no rule for understanding it because a metaphor is precisely saying that this is not the normal way of describing this thing that I'm describing. And nevertheless, what it means to understand a poem is to be in sync with the metaphor. And so Blake is expecting, maybe much too quickly, but I don't think he is. I think he knew how hard what he was writing was but he's expecting that his readers will be in sync with what he's saying in the same way that any poet thinks their readers will be in sync with what they're saying. And what puts us in sync with those things, in general in poetry, what puts us in sync is a common language. That is that there is so much in language that we don't think about because we're so familiar with it. And we're so familiar with it because we have exchanged these words and used these words 
with so many other people in so many different contexts that there is a way in which they become established the way something would be established in a neural net. That is, there isn't a particular thing that a word means. There isn't a particular set of data that a word corresponds to, but rather words appear in networks, and every time you use a word, those networks are evoked, some more strongly than others, and the evocation of those networks are what makes it possible for us to understand any language. In poetry, what happens is you're evoking multiple networks in a single line. Obviously, you're invoking all networks that a word is part of when you use a word, but then when you use in a line of poetry, in a metaphor, in a series of lines, in a series of words, you're evoking a whole lot of different networks which crisscross in various ways, and it's that crisscross that gives you a sense of poetic feeling. And then when you go to a class or close read a poem or talk about what's going on in a poem, and here I'm just talking about you know something like the Songs of Innocence, what, it, what the difference is between laughter is heard on the hill and whisperings are in the dale. There's no algorithm to tell you what's kind of creepier or less pleasant about saying whisperings are in the dale than laughter is heard on the hill. But we have different associations with them. We have different expectations for which words will appear. And the way poetry works is that all that vast web of association is something that we put together. And we feel confident that we know the meaning of a metaphor, let's say, when it all falls into place. And we don't feel confident when things don't fall into place. So for Blake, that network includes mythology and that network includes history. So he can name mythological figures like Orc or Los or Anatharman or Urizen and describe what they're doing and for us the networks are harder to access or maybe we feel less familiarity with them which is another way of saying that the networks are harder to access. We feel less familiarity with the things that those names are connected to but not so little familiarity that they won't start fitting together as you immerse yourself in Blake. And one of the, you know, if you do immerse yourself in Blake, one of the surprising and fascinating things is how much people who really, really, really know Blake, how much they agree on, how much it's stuff that they learn like a language. And when you learn a language, what's striking is that you're learning a language that other people speak. And you learn it by yourself. Most of our language learning is simply, from, is simply immersive, at least first language learning, is simply immersive. And people immersed in Blake, they learn Blake. And it turns out that it's doable, that it's something that can happen, that of course the footnotes help the way learning a foreign language, it helps in the first couple of semesters of foreign language to have grammar books and vocabularies and so on, but eventually you internalize it, and that's what happens with Blake. And it's a striking thing to know that that's what happens with Blake. So you guys, as I say, this has been a little bit sink or swim 
after the Songs of Innocence and of Experience. The Book of Fell might have been a first intro to the more obscure Blake, and then The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, a second intro to the more obscure Blake, and now we get Blake with lots of obscure mythological figures, but there are not that many of them. That's the other thing to know. There are a whole lot of them, given the fact that you don't know who they are, that you've never come across them before. But there are not that many of them, given the fact that Blake has a whole mythology. There are, I don't know, maybe eight or ten really major figures. Maybe more, maybe 12 or 14, but not beyond that. And then lots of more minor figures who you may have to remind yourself who they are. But if you know the eight or 10 or 12 or 14, once you're used to them and have a sense of them, things make sense. Yeah. Oh, your name was not. So, yeah, so America, a prophecy, is essentially a prophecy of revolutionary spirit. And there is, and what we learn in America, a prophecy, is that Orc is the revolutionary figure, that Orc stands for revolution. Who is Orc? That is a hard question, except internally, not so hard. Who is Orc the son of? We know from the Book of Urizen. Yeah, so Orc is the son of Los. And what is Los's relationship to Urizen? The prophet. So he's called the prophet. Oh, yeah. Wow. They're not blood in the eternal. Well, there's no blood among the Eternals. Right. But we would <laughs> metaphorically they're blood related. He's like he came out of Yeah. So so that would be blood related, right? <laughs> but you know, I don't know, he kinda of disappeared. Who did? Close. Well, he disappears at first, but then he's the one who's punishing Urizen and trying no, I'm sorry, I meant I said he appeared. Oh, he kind of appeared. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, so he does appear as Yurizen, we would say, falls. So here is maybe a very quick way to orient yourself. And remember, have the marriage of heaven and hell as the background here. So a very quick way to orient yourself is that Yurizen is the god of paradise lost. That is the creator of this world, which is a fallen world. Sorry, I thought devil was the god of paradise lost. Well, see, this is the confusion. So let's use the term Messiah then. Okay, so the Messiah in paradise lost is the figure who's actually thrown out of heaven. Remember we talked about this? when we Yeah. Did? So... The problem is we're sometimes using the words the way we would use them and sometimes using the words the way Blake would. So the quote God, unquote, the God character in Paradise Lost yes. is for Blake and on Blake's reading of Milton a character who is destroying the, the transcendent realm of the Eternals. Okay. So that figure is a figure who wants to be king and wants to be pow powerful. So Blake is against kingship. Blake loves Milton because he thinks of Milton as against kingship. And Blake's being against kingship means even against the kingship of God. Oh. 
Oh. Okay. okay. Makes sense? Yeah. So that is what Satan is against as well in Paradise Lost. So what we saw in the first two books of Paradise Lost is that Satan is, uh, is rebelling against God, saying there's no reason that he should be ruling us all, and saying that here <coughs> we are a republic. So the fallen, the fallen angels vote on things. They don't simply take commands from their king. Oh. <laughs> okay, so this is part of what makes Paradise Lost difficult to interpret because Milton was, as I mentioned before, part of the republic that beheaded, that rebelled against and beheaded the King of England, Charles II. So Milton was part of a republic and the and was very much on the Republican side, that is the side that was pro-Republic, not the current contemporary Republicans, very much on the Republican side, as opposed to the monarchists, the, who are called the loyalists, who were on the side of the king, and who thought that there, sh there had to be a king who governed everything. So then he writes Paradise Lost, in which the king is God and in which the, the rebel against God is Satan and his followers. And the argument about Paradise Lost is that you can either say, so clearly Milton is on Satan's side because Satan is the, the mythological version of what Milton and Cromwell and those on Milton's side were in the real world. So, so Milton is retelling the story of the rebellion against the king, but now he's putting it to heaven. And he's retelling the story of the loss of the rebels, because the rebels do finally lose. And Milton is writing Paradise Lost when the, the monarchy is restored in England. And Milton is, was under threat of execution and imprisoned. And these, these are all things that he then transposes to the biblical story. And this would explain, and certainly does explain, one of the reasons that Satan is so heroic, that Satan is such a powerful figure, that we admire Satan so much. The question is, how much does it explain? So one, those who, so there are two possibilities of reading Milton, and one is that Milton said, you shouldn't, this is the, the non-Satanic reading, sometimes called the angelic reading, that Milton is saying, no, of course he should not be on Satan's side. He simply wants power, and he makes that clear, and he's only a pretend Republican. And the reason you should be on God's side is that God actually is king, unlike these fake kings on earth like Charles I. So if you want to know where the, monar where the monarchy should be, it should be in heaven. And that means it shouldn't be on earth. So the idea would be that in Paradise Lost, Milton is giving an alternative to history, and the alternative is where it's right to have kings, as opposed to on earth where people are worshiping earthly kings when they should be worshiping the king of heaven. So one way to put it is to say, if Milton is, is a revolutionary till the end, which he is, if he's on the side of the anti-monarchical forces until the end, which he is, 
what is the opposite to what he's rebelling against? And the answer would be, on Earth, a republic is the opposite of a monarchy. The answer would, however, the other answer would be, the opposite to a monarchy on Earth is a monarchy in heaven. And therefore, by being against the monarchy on Earth, Milton was for the monarchy in heaven. And that's the angelic reading of Paradise Lost. The, all the good parts about Satan, all, all his nobility, all his courage, all his capacity as a leader and as a rebel and so on, that's just Milton writing from experience. He knew what rebellion was like. And so, and he knew what it meant to be an inspiring rebel leader, and so he creates an inspiring rebel leader. But that's more descriptive than moral. So that's the angelic reading of Paradise Lost is, of course, Satan's an amazing figure. Milton knew figures like that. However, Satan is on the wrong side in heaven, even though the figures Milton is basing him on were on the right side on earth. And then the more plausible, in my opinion, except that it's so implausible to find Milton being so anti-Christian God. But if you didn't know, if you're coming to Paradise Lost without knowing anything about its author, the more plausible reading is Milton is writing in fetters when he writes about heaven and is writing freely when he writes about the devil because he is a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing and therefore the Milton's God is evil. And that's how Blake read Paradise Lost, that uh, Milton's God was you. evil. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, but then the, the terminological problem is that Blake will say that the story got reversed, that it was actually Messiah or God who fell out of heaven in Paradise Lost and Satan who stayed in heaven because Satan and his followers are the true republic of heaven, to quote Philip Pullman. They're the true republic of heaven. And so it looks like Satan fell, but that is a description which is taking the wrong inertial frame. And the fall is actually the fall of God and Messiah and the loyal angels away from the true heaven which is wherever Satan and his followers are. So that's what, that's what we find out towards the end, that, that picture we're given towards the end of the marriage of heaven and hell. So, the, so just for terminological clarity, we will call Messiah, as Blake does, the evil oppressive figure in Paradise Lost who drives the rebel angels away from, the, from their heroic revolutionary attempt to establish a republic in heaven. Okay. So Messiah here is, is the antagonist, and the antagonist whom we are therefore against. And that means Jehovah is... Well, so leave Jehovah out of it, because what... what Blake does with Jehovah is to say that Jehovah is not the God of Paradise Lost. So the God of Paradise Lost is evil. We call him Messiah. Evil's too strong a word. He's destructive. 
he's repressive, we call him Messiah. Then there's Satan, who is rebellious and fights for freedom. And we'll just call him Satan, but by Satan we will mean Milton's Satan. The Satan of the book of Job is not Milton's Satan. The Satan of the book of Job is Messiah. So that's where the terminological confusion comes from. So when you get to the book of Urizen, Urizen is Messiah, is the Satan of the book of Job. Uh That is, Urizen is ultimately a repressive figure. And what he is repressing is the, what Blake calls the eternal, or the infinite, or we could call the infinite, or the real, it's not clear, but whatever it is that is at the source of being and maybe transcends being. And this is that, I'm not sure what adjective to use for it, because mystical would be the wrong adjective, but that world, that possibility of perception, that the Gnostic term is the abyss, so let's call it that possibility of depth, the deepest, the infinitely deep. Why don't we just call it that, the infinitely deep, where deep is a positive word. That is like when you call a person deep or call an idea deep. So the infinitely deep or the abyss. That is what Urizen can't stand. So Urizen belongs to the realm of the eternal, but he can't cope with it. And he wants instead to tame it, to make it into something that can be predictable and can be described and subdivided and analyzed in a predictable way. And what he is unable to cope with is the depth of the abyss. So the depth of the abyss, you wouldn't want to call it a good thing because that's already implying that there's something that it excludes, which is the not good, the evil. You don't want to, you don't want to separate it from anything. What you want to do maybe is call it the infinite possibility of maybe, I don't know. I mean, Blake is not falling into the trap that I'm falling into, but which is trying to, trying to describe it, but you could call this depth the infinite possibility of depth. The depth is the infinite possibility of depth. And that that possibility and that the, the, the availability of depth everywhere and all around you and in you. That is, for Blake, the greatest thing. And what you perceive when you see angels crying, holy, 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 rather than a round disc somewhat like a guinea. It's just the vastness, the spectacularness of being, except that even being would be too limiting a word. word. So I don't want to call this mystical because then it's just like, Oh, mystical man. And that's not what it is. What it is 
is this, the stunningness, the absolute stupendousness of existence, maybe. There is no good way to describe it, maybe unless you're Blake, but, or Heidegger, but that's what Eurozen is unable to cope with. So what happens if you go, let's go to the book of Eurozen, and let's, Milton is going to make all of this seem easy, by the way, just so you know. But that's okay. So, this is page 114, if you have the book. So here's the preludium. And the Book of Eurozen tells you where Orc comes from, and then Orc is revolutionary energy. And so Orc is, we see Orc as being crucial. As I say, America probably, after the Book of Eurozen, America makes more sense, because not that the Book of Eurozen casts that much light on it, but it's just you get a sense of the dynamics of Blake, and so what you get in America is Orc is, he's red Orc, why is he red? First thing we hear about him is that he's red. R-E-D, red. He's fiery. He's fiery, what else? Bloody, because revolutionary is, revolution is bloody. It's a bloody rebellion, it's, it's, war, it's war. It takes the form of war. It takes the form of blood and guts and death. He's also, remember the etymology of Adam? Adam means red clay. So Adam's name, he's named in Hebrew. I think this is in fact not true philologically, but was thought to be true until fairly recently when the philologists uh, actually figured out the origin of the name Adam. But he was taken to be by readers of the Hebrew Bible and by later commentators, including Blake, who could read Hebrew. He's take, his name is taken to mean red clay. Why? Why would that be a good name for Adam? Because he's, he's made out of clay. So, so God takes some iron-saturated clay. That's what makes clay red. He takes some iron-saturated clay and forms Adam out of it and names him what he is. A clod of clay. Yes. Did you notice the phrase clod of clay in yeah. the book of Eurison? Yeah. Eurison is a clod of clay. So orc is red orc because he is also somehow the origin of humanity. In that way, he's a little bit like Prometheus in Greek mythology. Prometheus gave humans fire and was punished for giving humans fire. And the punishment of Orc, which we will see in the book of Eurozen, is the punishment. He's chained to, he's chained down in the same way that Prometheus is chained to a rock. So there is a sense in which what happens to Orc, you can put mythologically into the same category as what happens to Prometheus. So he's a, a figure of rebellion, a figure of inspiration for humanity, 
and he makes the American Revolution possible. He is the son of Los. Los is originally undifferent for whatever, however, whatever that means. He's undifferent from Urizen. So Los comes into being when Urizen gets unhappy with the abyss. And he's a kind of, he would therefore somehow represent a tearing apart of Urizen himself. That Urizen torn produces as the embodiment of his own self-division produces Los. So Los is divided from Urizen, but what he's embodying is the very fact of that division. I'm trying to think, is it um, in The Magicians where there's something I read recently, some science fiction thing where and it might have been The Magicians, but I don't think it was, where creatures come into being as the the materializations of certain events that happen. But anyhow, I can't remember what it was. But I but I think that's what Los is. And then Los becomes self-divided himself into male and female. So Los before that, like Urizen, like all the eternal figures, are get the pronoun he but are not male the way human males are males or the way um, human females are females. But they divide, Los divides, and then other figures divide into different sexes. And that division, do people know the story from the symposium? Aristophanes' story from the symposium? So what is it? That's where everyone wants one being. Yeah. So the story in the symposium was that originally, this this is in, um, is it Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Anyhow, originally there's three sexes, not two. And the three sexes are male, female, and androgynous. And Zeus gets very upset because all these human beings, the female human beings, the male human beings, and the androgynous human beings are perfectly happy in themselves. So he divides all human beings in two. And so the males are divided into two men who are now separated from each other, and this is the origin of male homosexuality. The females are divided into two women who are then separated from each other, and this is the origin of female homosexuality or lesbianism. And the, the androgynous sex, the third sex, is divided into two beings, one male, one female, who long to find their other halves, and this is the origin of both male and female heterosexuality. So this is an origin myth about object choice, and the idea is that some men were split from other men whom they loved and who they now seek throughout the world. Some women were split from other women whom they loved and who they now seek throughout the world. And some men were split by women, split from women, and women were split from men, and they seek each other throughout the world. So it's a little bit like DNA. 
and the idea there is that the original figure which gets picked up by Milton in Paradise Lost, the original figure isn't like what a male is now, which is only half a being, or a female is now, which is only half a being. The original angels are androgynous, and God is androgynous in Paradise Lost. Milton doesn't push hard on this, but he does say so, that the angels and God, although he uses the pronoun he, it doesn't mean he the way, he doesn't mean he about God or about an angel, the way he means he about Adam. Adam, once Eve splits off from him, is a human male and not an androgynous figure the way the angels are. Were you going to say something? Yeah, it's just, so in the, the myth and the symposium, the reason why Zeus gets upset at everyone is because everyone's circles. Yeah. And so that they go, they roll around. Yeah. And so then they storm the heavens by going up a hill. And so he's like, oh, we can't let that happen, so you have to split them apart. And why I think that's important is because it's not like we used to be complete mm -hmm. and didn't desire anything. We're like, yeah. Earth isn't enough, but storm the heavens. Right. So even the whole state was a state of dissatisfaction, which I, I think you see also, like, Los is in a whole state. He's split off from your horizon. Yeah. Your horizon is in a whole state. He's split off from the Eternals. Right. So it's like the anterior condition is always a condition of dissatisfaction. Yeah. And splitting also, which... Yeah. I just like more than a myth of like, oh, there's like a perfect house. No, no, it's but, an imperfect but, house. That's, yeah. but yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. that, I, I think read that he feared their power as one, they were too powerful. Yeah. yeah, but the question is how metaphorical is that? Right. In other words, does he fear their power to displace him as the, as the focus of need? If they need nothing, then he's irrelevant. That's, that's the allegorical reading of it. That is, they storm the heavens because they're because heaven is their proper place, or do they storm the heavens because there's still dissatisfaction even under those conditions? So I think for Plato, it's the it's the former, but in Blake, it would certainly be the latter. So that idea then is that there's dissatisfaction, there's splitting, the splitting far from far from solving that dissatisfaction increases it and so Los appears as a, as a split within Urizen so as Urizen splits from the Eternals Los appears and Los splits from himself and Anathorman appears and their child Orc then appears and is chained down and all of this is caused by something like an incapacity to live with fluctuation, let's call it, because that's the word that Blake uses. A solid, what Urizen wants is a solid without fluctuation. And what it means to want a solid without fluctuation means to turn the world into a machine, to make everything predictable, to impose on the universe, Newton's laws of motion. And so that the, this is where the laws of nature come from. So, you know, one puzzle is why there are laws of nature. And the joke is, it was a joke t-shirt that I like, which I'm sure you guys have seen some version of, which is 165,000 miles per second, it's not just a good idea, it's the law. 
which is alluding to old speed limit signs, 55 miles per hour. It's not just a good idea, it's the law. So one kind of law is you are forbidden to go faster than 55 miles per hour. Another is a law of nature, which is this is how things are. Nothing is forbidding light to go faster than 165,000 miles per second. The law, it's, it is a law, that is, you never find um, an exception to this law, that that's the speed of light in a vacuum. And so Blake is putting those two ideas of law together, which is a theological idea. That is, that God creates the universe in a standard theological idea. God creates the universe according to certain laws and the universe is predictable and functions well and everything does the way what it's supposed to do 99.99% of the time because God has imposed these laws on matter, let's say. And the, so that theological idea that God is imposing laws is an idea that puts, as I say, puts those two ideas of law together that nature doesn't violate, which is another word we use all the time, nature doesn't violate certain laws because God is the person who imposes those laws and imposes them on nature. So Blake here makes Eurozone, first off, the law, the person who imposes laws on nature and on the universe. So in that sense, Eurozone is Messiah, the God, the, the law-giving God, and the stone, therefore, stands for the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, which are also, so the stone stands for something refractory, impossible to get through, something that blocks you, something whose solidity is, is an obstacle to the freedom of the soul or the freedom of the mind and therefore it's no surprise that the law was written in stone that stone is the stoniness of the law is the stoniness of that which limits the mind's or the soul's freedom so Orc is then imprisoned he's enchained by his father Los and he seeks to break out of these chains, and now we get a family dynamic. So first there are the Eternals, then there's Eurozen, then there's Los, then there's Anatharman, then there's Orc, and the Binding of Orc. And the Binding of Orc has to somewhere be like the Binding of Isaac, like Abraham binding Isaac, I don't think. Blake makes that particularly explicit, but it's hard not to think of that somewhere in the background. The only reason I'm not certain about that is that Blake is really, really good at being elusive and sending you to various biblical verses, and he doesn't quite with the, the binding of Isaac, but it seems like that's what the chain that Orc is, is enchained in has to mean. So Orc attempts to break those chains. That's what makes Orca revolutionary figure, and then we meet him in America as, as the revolutionary figure who is attempting to break those chains 
against the King of England, who is an evil figure. He's called an angel, but he's an angel in the Paradise Lost sense of angel. That is one of the figures loyal to Messiah, and therefore not a rebel and not a revolutionary. Sorry, I thought you said angels are people who voted. No, the rebel angels voted. Oh. The loyal okay. angels did not. Okay, got it. So the loyal angels basically say, whatever God says, we love. And the rebel angels have self-determination in a way that the loyal angels don't. And the king of England says whatever God says. Well, he says, I am God. Um, oh, okay. I'm the representative of, of God. Um, so he is the Albion's angel, which sounds like a good thing, but for Blake is a bad thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I was wondering if I was reading this right. So at the moment where work is bound on the top what of the page mountain, um, page 126, um, so right at the bottom, the dead heard the voice of the child and began to awake from sleep. All things heard the voice of the child and began to awake to life. And Urizen, craving with hunger, stung with the odors of nature, explored his dens around. Um, and previously it seemed that he had gone into some sort of death or sleep. Mm -hmm. So does it does work, like the revolutionary impulse, ironically awaken yeah. the god he later rebels against? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, well, but he's also rebelling against Lokes. Mm -hmm. So who he's for... indiscriminate then. Well, it's not so much that he's indiscriminate as that Los has chained him. And Los has chained him because Los is, to some extent, uh, an avatar of Eurizen's. Because Los stands... Because what Eurizen does wrong is to split. And Los, he splits from Los, which means that we want to be on Los's side of that split and not on Eurizen's side. But Los also is the split, which means Los is the wrongness. So because Eurizen splits from Los, um, he is both the other than, the alternative to Los, but also the very fact of the split, which is the wrong thing. Yeah. What, what, like, what is bad about splitting? Like, what does splitting represent to us? Well, it represents our own separation from each other. Oh, okay. So it represents our, and ultimately it represents our own selfishness and okay. our own desire for control, okay. which is what Eurizen desires. Okay. So, so Eurizen, remember all the stuff about reason and ratios in the marriage of heaven and hell? That's what Eurizen is the god of. And um, Blake actually has a painting of Newton and a painting, an illustration of Eurizen, where they look exactly like each other. So Eurizen, in some sense, one human avatar of Eurizen is Newton, who is establishing, again, with the ambiguity of the word establish, establishing the laws of nature. Yeah. Okay, I, personally, I don't think that's a comparison. Like, Eurizen to Newton is a good comparison, because, like, scientific law isn't stony. It's, it's like, meant, it recognizes that it can be, um, like, rewritten. And it's usually yeah, telling us... It's usually telling us things about nature that make us realize how much more complicated nature is than, yeah. and how much more disordered yeah, yeah. nature is than we think. Yeah, but I think you, would, you might think this about 18th century theological scientists. You might agree with Blake. Yeah. So what the 18th century theological scientists, that's the God the clockmaker view of things. So how do we know God exists? 
So for Blake, the way you know God exists is you look at the sun and you see a choir of angels singing holy, holy, holy. And what else is there to know? That's, that transcends any kind of investigative knowledge. For a Eurozenic figure, for a figure like William Paley, who's a very famous, gives a very famous teleological argument for the existence of God, as it's called, the way you know God exists is because the universe is an incredibly complicated piece of machinery. It's like a really, really, really complex clock where everything works really well. And you can't, if you found a clock in the woods, you would know that someone had to have created the clock. There has to be a clockmaker. So if there's a clock, there's a clockmaker. The universe is a clock. Therefore, there is a clockmaker, and God is a clockmaker. And so what Blake denies with all his heart is the idea that God is a clockmaker. Now, is there a clock? Yes, Newton showed there was a clock. There's no doubt a clock. So who's the clockmaker? The clockmaker is someone who didn't understand what the true God was, and instead came in and got rid of the humanities and made everything stem. How's that? <laughs> Um, someone who came in and said this abyss is fearful and frightening and everything about it is ambivalent and ambiguous and it is too deep to find your way in and what I'm going to do is turn away from it and start building things that are clock-like and that's this world that we live in is the clockmaker's world. So Blake will agree with Paley that this world is the clockmaker's world. But what he disagrees with is that therefore God is a clockmaker. And for him, the clockmaker is not, there is a clockmaker, but it's not God. It's yours. Oh, okay. So a lot of this comes out of Gnosticism. And the Gnostic view of, of things is that the God worshipped in the Bible and mentioned by Plato is a, is a figure who rebelled against the Gnostic pre-originary state of things and created this fake universe, which is the universe we live in. And the fake universe is an imitation universe. The Truman Show is actually a Gnostic movie um, that we live, we all live in the Truman Show. We live in a fake universe which is a stage set imitation of the truth. And these are ideas that go back to the third, third century or so, even earlier. Um, even back to the time of Christ. Gnostic ideas, that there's something that transcends this world, not the way the Christian heaven transcends this world, which is this world perfected, let's say, not even the way Dante's heaven trans transcends this world, but transcends the very idea of space and time and separateness and predictability that belong to this world. So, but let's go to where Ryan pointed us. So, um, 
on page 126. Let's just start at, in his hands, this is uh, um, verse 11 under yours in C7. In his hands, he seized the infant. He bathed him in springs of sorrow. He gave him to Anatharma. So Los no longer beholds eternity. And it's partly that he's separated from himself. Yeah, I, I guess let's... The problem with doing Blake anytime you do Blake is you always want to go back a few lines and then that recursion lasts forever. But let's just st start at the top of the page arbitrarily. Thus the eternal prophet was divided before the death image of Urizen. So the eternal prophet there is, is Los. Thus the eternal prophet was divided before the death image of Urizen for in changeable clouds and darkness in a winterly night beneath the abyss of Los stretched immense and now seen, now obscured to the eyes of Eternals, the visions remote of the dark separation appeared. So dark separation, that's the bad thing. Or you could say what's a bad thing is when you separate yourself from separation when separation becomes something outside of you. So here's the abyss of Los. It stretches immense and now seen now obscured to the eyes of Eternals, including Los, the visions remote of the dark separation appeared. As glasses discover worlds in the endless abyss of space. So now we're looking at this dark separation as though it's far away the way telescopes can see worlds. That's what glasses are. Telescopes can see worlds that are far away. Telescopes first really appear, importantly, in English literature in Paradise Lost, where Galileo, the one person that Milton never met, who, is, who appears in Paradise Lost. Milton met Galileo when he was a young man, and Galileo was an old man, and no one else in Paradise Lost um, mentioned in Paradise Lost has lived any closer to Milton than about 200 years earlier and most everyone mentioned Paradise Lost is ancient but one, one, one person who Milton met as a living human being is mentioned in Paradise Lost and he's mentioned as looking through a telescope so yeah also could glasses discovering worlds in the endless abyss of space be like seeing the infinite seeing the universe in a grain of sand yes together. yeah but in this case it's seeing the universe in a grain of sand and saying oh my god I needed a telescope or a microscope to do that so it's far away uh, as opposed okay. to having it right there yeah the universe is with you all the time in this case it's this endless abyss is something that's separate from us so that's what's wrong with it. Okay. So the expanding eyes of immortals beheld the dark visions of Los, and there there has to be a pun. All these names, people spend a lot of time trying to figure out Blake's puns, and one problem is Blake is maybe not that good a punster. So Urizen is horizon, seems clear that his name means something like a horizon, which is a limitation. You can't get beyond the horizon. Um, but... Some people think it means your reason, which 
I would hate for that to be true because it's just such a stupid pun. <laughs> um, and um, here, though, it does feel like Los has to mean loss as well. So the expanding eyes of immortals beheld the dark visions of, of loss. And I think Los's name as being loss, that's not a bad connection to make. And the globe of lifeblood trembling. So the globe of lifeblood would be this universe, but then it becomes blood itself. Stretched for a work of eternity, no more Los beheld eternity. So now he stretched himself out to get to the abyss, but he now no more beholds eternity. In his hands he sees the infant. He bathed him in springs of sorrow. He gave him to Anatharma. So that infant bathed in springs of sorrow. Just a beautiful line. And it has to be his own sorrow, and it has to be the sorrow of being born, being alive. He gave him to Anatharma. They named the child Orc. He grew fed with milk of Anatharma. Los awoke her. Oh, sorrow and pain. <coughs> A tightening girdle grew around his bosom. In sobbings, he burst the girdle in twain, but still another girdle oppressed his bosom. In sobbings, again he burst it. Again another girdle succeeds. <coughs> the girdle was formed by day, by night was burst in twain. So there's Los a little bit as a Promethean figure. And then all these broken girdles, these falling down on the rock into an iron chain in each other link by link locked. So this girdle, which is somehow a limitation on Los, that every night he is prevented from returning to, he's chained up, prevented from returning to the infiniteness of the abyss. They become an iron chain in each other link by link locked. Yeah. I'll just point out that the uh, twain chain rock locked yeah. the, the bondage, the fetters of rhyme that yeah. oppressed Milton so much. Right. Yes. Yeah. So when, um, remember we looked at the note on the verse and what Milton says in the note on the verse of Paradise Lost is that that this may be esteemed an example set, the first in English, of the the what is it the the freeing of poetry from the troublesome and modern bondage of rhyme. So here we're getting rhyme, rock locked, um, day twain again. So again rhyming with twain, twain. What is it? Pain, sobbings, twain, sobbings, again, twain, rock, chain, locked. They took Orc to the top of a mountain. Oh, how Anatharman wept. So we're afraid Orc is going to be abandoned and killed, like Oedipus, abandoned there, and Anatharman weeps. They chained his young limbs to the rock with the chain of jealousy beneath Urizen's deathful shadow. So 
somehow the shadow of urizen creates jealousy. And one thing that's wonderfully ambiguous here is whose jealousy is it? So they chained him with the chain of jealousy. What does that mean? His own jealousy. Who's the his? When you say his own jealousy, what do you mean? No. No, I mean, it would either be Los or... Or... I mean, they chain him with chains of jealousy. Okay. So the they there is Anatharman and Los. And they chain Orc to the rock with the chains of jealousy. So what does chains of jealousy mean? How do they do that? Well, jealousy is like wanting what somebody else has. But you can... Like... Because it's like the separation of selves. Uh huh. You can only want what someone else has if you're like separated from them. Okay, good. So then, like, the the chain of nice. jealousy is literally the the separation. Nice, great. That's great. So my my less great version of this. No, that's really good. My less great version of this would be something like. I think it's I think it supports what you're saying, is that that they feel jealousy of Orc, and so they chain him with chains of jealousy the way an overprotective parent might chain her child with chains of overprotection. I don't know, something like that. That's an obvious reading. The other possibility is that they inspire jealousy in Orc. That is, that the chains of jealousy, that's another allegory for what it for what's happened to Orc is that he experiences jealousy, which is a chain. So if someone is, if someone complains, or if, if you say of X, X is, is hobbled by the chain of jealousy, and you don't have a context for that, it could mean that someone is preventing X from doing everything that he wants to do, because they're jealous of X's freedom, and they won't let X be as free as it would be good for him to be. That's one possibility, right? Eh, she never lets him out of her sight, and he's, he's just bound by the chains of her jealousy. That's one possibility. The other possibility is he's hobbled because he can't get over his own jealousy. So the chain of jealousy can be a self-imposed one. What's the similar phrase in London? Do you remember? Mind manacles. The mind forged manacles. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in what is it? Every street and every band, the mind forged manacles I hear. So mind forged manacles could mean that people are prevented from thinking freely and their own thinking is manacled by laws. They, they are physically free, but that doesn't matter. Or it could mean that they are enslaving themselves, that they have manacled themselves out of the beliefs and fears and misrepresentations of their own minds. So the same thing can be happening here. With, so they chained his young limbs to the rock with a chain of jealousy beneath Urizen's dreadful shadow, just one more minute. The dead heard the voice of the child and began to awake from sleep. 
So that means the child is somehow like Jesus, at least for a moment. The child who awakens the dead, that sounds like Jesus in the good Jesus, the Jesus that Blake and Milton both love. So the dead heard the voice of the child and began to awake from sleep. All things heard the voice of the child and began to awake to life. So that's a good quadrant. And Urizen, craving with hunger, stung with the odors of nature, explored his dens around. So what happens is life appears on earth, and Urizen smells it. And what he smells is food. I smell the blood of a human being. Fee-fi-fo-fum. I smell the blood of a human being. So things come to life, and Urizen wakes up because now he's hungry. And then he formed a line and a plummet to divide the abyss beneath. He formed a dividing rule. He formed scales to weigh. He formed massy weights. He formed a brazen quadrant. He formed golden compasses, which is where Pullman gets the title for the American version of the first volume of his Dark Materials, and began to explore the abyss, and he planted a garden of fruits. So that's the Garden of Eden. But Los encircled Anathormum with fires of prophecy from the site of Urizen and Orc, and she bore an enormous race. So there is, it's really hard to orient yourself partly because dominoes of disaster keep falling. Dominoes of separation keep falling. And the separation itself is what the bad thing is. But separating yourself from separation is also a bad thing, which is what Lowe's does. So separation is so bad that even to separate yourself from separation is bad because it's another separation. All right. <laughs> Have a good weekend. Um, as I say, Milton is hard, but maybe it'll be less hard if you read it five times, which would be good. All right. See you on Monday. <laughs>